This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, historian Todd Bennett on the secretive story of the Glomar Explorer. Really, the prize was a submarine-launched ballistic missile system, the warhead to that missile, but then also, critically, and this is really what drove the mission, was the cryptographic materials. Things haven't, aren't crazy enough with this project. <laughs> Enter Howard Hughes, right? At his craziest point in life, at, at his most eccentric yeah, point eccentric, in life. That's yes. exactly right. This was a crazy scheme. A giant ship with a giant claw reaching down to get a submarine at estimates placed at 4 million pounds from a depth of over three miles in the open ocean. Who would do such a thing? To use the CIA's words, Crazy Howard. Todd Bennett, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, So you are the author of the book, Neither Confirm Nor Deny, How the Glomar Mission Shielded the CIA from Transparency. Um, For those who do not know what the Glomar is, you are in for a treat. This is truly one of the more extraordinary stories uh, you are likely to hear about the CIA. Uh, We were joking before this began that I'm surprised that Hollywood has not made this into a Netflix series because it kind of has everything. Um, But uh, uh, it's a terrific book. It's a great, really great piece of history. Um, And we are going to get into all of this today in the discussion. And and we should say from the, the title of your book, this is both a history of the Glomar mission, but also an argument that you're making about the effect that it had on intelligence and national security and policy. And you are an intelligence historian. So maybe before we begin, just give us a little bit of background on on where you come from and the jobs that you've had. Yeah, sure. So now uh, I teach at East Carolina University, but in a previous professional life, and this is how I came to this topic, actually, I was a historian at the U.S. Department of State, which has an office of the historian that compiles well, this is inside baseball, but uh, a series called the Foreign Relations of the United States series, which is an official documentary record of U.S. foreign policy. And it really is, um, I mean, it is the gold standard in terms of government transparency as far as historical documentation of foreign relations go. It's a warts and all approach. So I began that job in, um, in 2002. And one of the great things about that job is it comes with clearances and access in order to compile this official documentary mm-hmm. history of U.S. foreign policy. You actually right? get to read classified documents. You do. I mean, it's part of the job description, mm-hmm. right? And you have a congressional mandate to tell a thorough, accurate, and reliable a story of U.S. foreign relations, the history of it. So that's one of the great things about the job, is that you get to go into the archives that the public doesn't get to see while the records are still in their classified stage, um, go to the White House, uh, go to presidential libraries, uh, and to the CIA. And so as part of that remit in um, compiling a volume on national security policy from 1973 to 1976, I came upon some documents uh, that documented the Glomar Explorer mission in the mid-1970s and just the story just hits you, right? It's just an amazing story. And right, the cinematic kind of qualities to it just hit me. And I thought, you know, this is, A, the story. We need to document this for reasons X, Y, and Z for this particular purpose. Um, but then you certainly kind of see the possibilities moving yeah. forward. Well, let's let's start the story at the beginning, which is actually not so much with the Glomar or the Glomar Explorer, this 
really unusual vessel that the CIA constructs, um, but with the submarine that it was built to go and retrieve. So tell us, start with the story with the story of the K-129, the Soviet submarine that sinks in the Pacific. Sure. I mean, this is a complicated story uh, overall. But <laughs> we'll try it, to unpack it. <laughs> so just it we can. That, that's a great way to start. It begins um, in a relatively straightforward way in March of 1968. When a Soviet uh, submarine uh, carrying nuclear weapons um, sinks in the North Pacific Ocean, uh, tragically killing 98 uh, submariners aboard, the reasons uh, for the uh, sinking are unclear. They're debated to this day. Some say it was an internal accident. Others argue that it collided with another uh, ship, perhaps an American submarine. The, it's not clear. And that's one area. There are several mysteries uh, regarding this entire uh, episode that are still uh, un unsolved uh, mm -hmm. because the records haven't been declassified fully. And that's one area. So all we can really do is speculate as to the uh, causes. And at the time, there was speculation as to the causes. But what U.S. intelligence uh, could figure out rather quickly is where the sub was located. So the Soviets... I could not locate their own sub. Hmm. Um, they had a general idea where it was, but the general idea was several hundred square miles wide. And so the first inkling that something was wrong uh, from the American side was when American naval intelligence could observe dozens of Soviet ships um, and aircraft uh, scanning a large area, look clearly looking for something. Mm -hmm. What? It was not exactly clear, but the, the U.S. had some superior technology, uh, underwater listening devices, uh, that allowed them to pinpoint this sunken submarine to geolocate it down to almost an exact point mm. in the globe, um, located some, I think, 1,560 miles northwest of Hawaii. So it's really out there in the, in the, in the middle of the ocean, and it's, it sinks more than three miles down, right? Yeah, it's way out there in the middle of the ocean, and it sinks more than three miles down. So it's not just a matter of geolocating it in, in, in coordinates, but then um, uh, horizontally as well. It sinks at a depth of over 16,500 mm. feet, so in excess of three miles. And it's just extraordinary even today to think, okay, how can you recover something uh, in the middle of the open ocean, you have mm -hmm. to, you have to, I'm not an engineer uh, to be clear. <laughs> right, we, that's right. something we, I didn't in, set up to write that book because that book has been written before. Mm -hmm. I will kind of interject at this point by an engineer mm -hmm. uh, who was a, a former CIA veteran, uh, participated on this project, David Sharp, um, uh, who wrote the book uh, on the engineering aspects mm -hmm. of this, uh, published by Kansas University Press several years ago, and it's the last word on the engineering aspects. I'm not an engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm a foreign relations historian. Right, right. Um, but uh, to think about the pot, trying to lift something that estimates placed at 4 million pounds from a depth of over three miles in the open ocean, the platform had to maintain a stability in right. the open ocean to do that. It's just remarkable now. But... 40 years ago, that was at the very cutting edge of right. technology. Right. So the Americans know the sub has gone down. Then I'm having, you know, visions of, you know, the scene in Hunt for Red October with, you know, you've lost another submarine. Um, the Americans know something is there and they presume that it would be of tremendous intelligence value, right? I mean, it has nuclear weapons on it. What else did they suspect might be on the sub that they might want to retrieve? 
Yeah. So this is this is a really interesting question. Um, so the first of all, they have to determine that because they know where it is. Is it salvageable? Mm. Right. And so it turned out that there's an American surveillance sub that w- that is sent to survey the site, and it takes thousands of pictures, mm-hmm. which is a capability which in itself is amazing. Right. Right. To be right. able to go down and take photographs. Because human and, beings can't dive to that depth. Not even own. close. Yeah. Right. So to be able to take these photographs and that you can read them and they can make they make sense and they show things within a certain level of detail that's amazing, and it was determined um, that the sub, though it had uh, sustained some significant damage, was in relatively good shape. Mm. It was lying on its starboard side, mm-hmm. relatively flat ground, and in a c- condition that was recoverable, including and it had broken apart into various sections, but the the section that U.S. intelligence was most interested in recovering was intact. And that was the forwardmost section from the bow of the submarine to the sail. And they thought that that uh, portion included three critical things. Mm. The, sub, the hull of the submarine itself was not important, relatively speaking. Right. You, could, you could examine it. It might tell you something about... Um, Soviet capabilities at that particular point in time regarding submarines, but really the prize was um, a, a submarine-launched ballistic missile system that was contained within the hull of the sub, the warhead uh, to that missile, but then also critically, and this is really what drove the mission, was the cryptographic materials, code machines, documents that told how the system worked. To my knowledge, and to the knowledge of people I spoke to, mm-hmm. and there were several people very high up in the intelligence community that I did speak to, to a person they all say, the United States had never recovered a Soviet code machine, mm. uh, had never been able to crack the Soviet code despite years of trying, and that this was the key thing. If you could get the code machine, if you could get the documents and associated materials, that might give you the ability to read the Soviet Navy's mail, so to speak. Wow. And that would be significant on par, some said, with the cracking of the German and Japanese codes during World War II. So somebody in the CIA gets the crazy idea of, all right, this stuff is all in the sub. What we really need to do is go out and find a way to pick up this whole portion of the sub from three miles down in the ocean. Um, And it is initially greeted by the director of the CIA as a somewhat crazy idea. So pick up the story there. Who who gets this bright notion? Sure. So the bright notion... (laughs) Um, long story short, are the, the, the largely aerospace engineers in the CIA's Directorate of Science and Technology, DS&T, mm-hmm. which are known to this day as the Wizards of Langley, and justifiably so at that time in particular because DS&T had pioneered um, uh, such breakthroughs as the U-2 high-altitude spy plane in the 1950s, capable of flying at... Um, 70,000 feet or above, right? And then the follow-on projects to the U-2. The other aircraft that were supersonic, also high-flying, high-altitude aircrafts to overfly, uh, for the most part, (laughs) to to a point, um, Soviet air defenses and to collect overhead intelligence. But even beyond that were America's uh, first uh, photo reconnaissance satellites Mm. as well. So DS&T had developed a reputation for de- delivering highly technical, highly complex work projects on time, on spec, 
and under budget, mm-hmm. right? And so this is the shop that comes up with the idea to raise this submarine. Uh, they present it. The director of, of that um, shop presents the program, uh, the proposal, to the CIA director at the time, Richard Helms, uh, a well-known uh, DCI from the past. And Helms's reaction, to the extent that we have it, because this is he was highly secretive, as many uh, DCIs were and are, but Helms, by reputation, was among the most secretive of DCIs, right? So from what we gather... Um, his initial reaction was, you must be crazy. <laughs> How can you lift this object in the open ocean, as we discussed, um, three miles below? How can you lift a four million pound object? It's impossible. It's crazy. You can't do it. And that, they only take that, it seems, as a challenge in the DST is it, 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 to, to try and design something that can do it. Yeah, I think I think. Um, Confidence is key, and this is one yeah. of the sub-themes of the book, is confidence. Uh, DS&T's confidence was, I don't know if it's an all-time high, that may not be accurate, but it was at a high. A highly confident group of people, and competent people who believed, one of them say, um, that this was the era. Remember, this is 1969. I think that's important to remember. Mm-hmm. This is in the before times. Yeah. This is before Vietnam's final chapter is written. Before Watergate, mm-hmm. critically, because this is an expensive project, before the 1970s era of stagflation, mm-hmm. right? The U.S. government is still running in the black. There's a budget surplus. The U.S. is about to go to the moon, in part on technology that's similar to the kind being uh, deployed by DST. So there's a, a feeling at the time that American technology could do anything, yeah, right? And that's really, really crucial. Had this proposal come five years later, I don't believe that it would have had, they, it, the blueprint would have gotten off the drawing board mm-hmm. in part for that reason. There wasn't the same level of confidence, but uh, DS&T engineers, the Wizards of Langley, were uh, confident that they could pull this off. And this is, and we'll get to this later in the discussion, but importantly is also a time before many of the intelligence excesses and scandals as we see them now. And, you know, illegal operations, particularly in the U.S., were exposed. So it's a different kind of period for, you know, the agency. Um, it's also a, peri- a, a project that is from the beginning shrouded in enormous secrecy and security. So talk a little bit about just the security arrangements. You know, we talk about intelligence programs as being compartmentalized and, and need to know. And from the beginning, this is kind of, you know, it's it's encased in that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because for the program to be valuable, the Soviets don't know that the Americans have located their submarine. And so if the U.S. can recover the sub, it will be doubly value, valuable as long as the Soviets don't realize the Americans have it, right? And it's an enormous undertaking. And this is one of the problems, not, in, in, not just enormous in terms of the hardware involved. So just to kind of give you a sense, um, the, the lift platform, a surface ship that's developed to be called the Hughes Glomar Explorer, mm-hmm. that's 618 feet long, uh, more than 115 feet wide, too wide, it turned out, to pass through the Panama Canal. <laughs> so they had to go around right. South America. Well, they have to, to get, get it out to the sub. Yeah, yeah, right. And so that just gives you a sense. And so this, the, the hardware is going to operate out in the open for the most part 
throughout the lifespan of the project, which is a multi-year project. But also, it, there's gonna, going to be, even at the beginning, there were hundreds of people who knew within the, the American government and private contractors about this effort, at least some part of it. And that number would grow to as high as 1,900 over the course of the program, right? And a, a slip of the tongue, um, a misplaced piece of paper could really ruin the whole program. So from the very get-go, to, to be responsive to your question, and it's a good one, is secrecy. To, you had to keep it secret. How do you keep it secret? Well, through um, extraordinary measures. So there are, there's a lot of uh, intelligence programs out there at this time, and the most highly classified were are known as special access programs where it's not just top secret, but their code word programs were limited to a strict need to know where people don't to have access to information um, aren't just cleared at the at the secret or top secret level, but had to be read into the program and have a demonstrated need to know. And this is one of those programs that's highly compartmented. And so knowledge was limited as strictly as possible to keep it secret. And that's just one aspect of the secretiveness about it. But I think as you, as you mentioned earlier, part of the story too, and this is um, really the, the theme of the book, is that it's not just a particular program, but the program comes along at a time of extreme secretiveness mm -hmm. in the U.S. intelligence community. Generally speaking, there was not the level of oversight that would come along later, and that's part of the story as well. So the, the program is given the code name Azorian, right? Uh, it later gets confused with a code name called Jennifer, which was actually the code name, if I understand it, for the security program around Azoria, which gives you an idea of the sort of the wheels within wheels. Um, but Azorian sort of is launched here, and they have this idea that we're going to build this giant ship uh, with essentially a, a, a big reservoir kind of inside, and we're going to lift this thing up with a giant claw, this submarine, into the belly of the ship where we can look at it. Um, and as you say, it's going to be out there in the open where people you can't really hide a ship in a project, so they have to develop a plausible cover story for what this ship is doing, even when it's doing something else. Uh, enter Howard Hughes, <laughs> a man who probably needs no introduction, but maybe provide a brief one. Tell us the story of how Howard Hughes gets caught up in the Glomar uh, Explorer mission. Yeah, right. If things haven't aren't crazy enough with this project, <laughs> enter Howard Hughes, right. right? At his craziest point in life, at, at his most eccentric yeah, point eccentric, in life. That's yes. exactly right. And so, um, yeah, Howard Hughes. Who who was Howard Hughes? Well, um, I think it's important to imagine here not the Howard Hughes of yesteryear mm -hmm. uh, in the black and white films. Um, that was Howard, the Howard Hughes at one point in his life. Uh, Howard Hughes, who had uh, inherited his father's drill bit fortune, the Hughes Tool Company, and soon after inheriting that fortune, left his native Houston, Texas, and decamped to Hollywood, where he became a movie mogul and a record-setting aviator and then a celebrated playboy as well. Well, that phase of his life was over by now. Um, the last known photograph of him was taken approximately mid-1950s, mm. let's say, uh, because he dropped it a public site. Why? It's unclear. Uh, appears to ha may perhaps have been some undiagnosed uh, condition. Uh, psychologists today speculate that it may have been a severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. That's speculation, but undiagnosed perhaps. And so he drops out of sight. And at this stage, 
Uh, he is holed up on the top floor, the penthouse of the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. So, right, this is his his craziest phase of mm-hmm. his life mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, has not been seen in public for over 15 years by this point. Um, and this is critical to the story. Uh, he's only a few people, some attendants who attend to his personal needs, lay eyes on him. Um, his closest business associates, the, the folks who ran his companies, vice presidents and presidents of Hughes Tool, have not actually seen him face-to-face for years. Instead, they must correspond with him uh, through memos, through letters, handwritten documentation, and on the phone. But that's the limit of their contact with him. What is Howard Hughes's uh, uh, physical and mental condition at this stage, that really is open to speculation. What does Howard Hughes know about this particular project and how does he know it and when? That's another important question we can get into. But, uh, but from the CIA's perspective, the cover for this particular project, Howard Hughes, despite all that, was a, seemed to be the perfect front man for the following reasons. One, Hughes' tool um, sold drill bits uh, to firms active in ocean exploration. The chosen cover for this program was to cover it under the fiction that the Hughes Glomar Explorer, the, the surface ship, was a mining vessel, a deep ocean mining vessel. This was all a deep ocean mining program, right? And so that, that would give it some measure of plausibility, the, the ocean exploration. Two... Hughes Tool, the center of Hughes's business empire, was entirely privately owned. Mm. No Security and Exchange Commission reports to file, no investors uh, or who to be answered to. So Hughes can operate without kind of any accountability, right? Uh, also, Hughes was notoriously secretive, mm-hmm. and this is one of the things that appealed um, that the, uh, made him that recommended him for the cover job. And then finally. To get back to your point, right? It was the eccentricity. That was crucial as well. So from if you read the cover evaluation, which has been declassified from the CIA's perspective, that was a plus. Because this was a crazy scheme. A giant ship with a giant claw reaching down to get a submarine. Now that we know that was the story, but even in a deep ocean mining program, which was uh, the cover, but that there was an industry that existed that was very much in its infancy at that point, who would do such a thing, to use the CIA's words, crazy Howard, right? a crazy man pursuing a crazy scheme. That was crucial to the cover. And and how much do we think that he really knew about what was going on? I mean, obviously he, it is, it is, it is his name on the ship. It's the Hughes Glomar Explorer. And there are go-betweens working between the CIA, and we can talk about maybe one Robert Mayhew, who figures very big in this. But just to start with, do we have a sense that he understood what he was signing his name to? So the, the Hughes is a black box, intentionally so, mm-hmm. I think, for this program. And I was marginally successful in making sense of that. This is one of the questions. His closest associate, there actually was, a Hughes uh, corporate official who ended up being the CIA's go-between uh, with Hughes. And this Hughes uh, corporate official insists uh, that Hughes approved every action that his subordinates took, that they did nothing without Hughes's okay. 
and that Hughes was fully competent to make decisions and was aware of this program. On the other hand, Hughes's competence came up, um, became a legal matter in, at this very moment because there, there was a corporate struggle that broke out for control of his business empire, uh, which involved the signing of a proxy agreement giving control of the empire to some officials. And Hughes's signature, I'm choosing my words carefully mm. here, appeared on that proxy. And the validity of that signature became a legal issue. It was judged about to be a valid signature. So we have to go with that. But what, what he knew, how competent he was, that is an open question. So we mentioned, I mentioned this guy, Robert Mayhew, which we could spend probably an entire podcast just talking about him and his uh, extraordinary life and his various shenanigans. But give us a little bit of a flavor for who he is and how he figures both in the Hughes Enterprise and the Glomar mission. Yeah. So uh, Robert Mayhew, an interest, a, a name, not a household name today, but at one point someone who was really at the center of the action. Um, short, long story short, Mayhew was at one point in his career an FBI agent. He also became uh, Hughes's uh, a private detective, essentially Hughes's fixer, mm. right? That fixed problems with politicians, um, that fixed problems with government agencies, uh, fixed problems uh, in Las Vegas and so forth. So he worked for Hughes, uh, became Hughes's top lieutenant from the mid 1950s on to about 1970 or so, which corresponds to the point where Hughes had dropped out of public sight and to bring it up to the story where the CIA approaches him to front the Glomar operation. In addition to all that, uh, Mayhew, declassified documents now show, uh, worked as a contractor for the CIA mm -hmm. throughout that time. So his private security firm, uh, Robert Mayhew Associates, provided cover for um, CIA operatives working abroad. And also, crucially, uh, Mayhew served as a cutout uh, for some of the most notorious operations in CIA history. To include, uh, <laughs> to include, um, and this is where things get really nuts. Uh, to include uh, an attempted uh, plot to assassinate Fidel Castro in league with organized crime figures. Yeah. And this is where it gets, it almost starts to sound like the realm of conspiracy theory. But it's important to remember that these were individuals who were working for the agency, right? And they, the agency had some sense of what they were doing. And this was, I mean, I want to know if I guess this is a standard operating procedure, but this was a way that the CIA conducted clandestine operations. Yeah. And it's pertinent to the Glomar story because when the agency tries, wants to approach Hughes to be the cover, is they don't really, the only contact they have is Mayhew. Mm -hmm. Well, back to Richard Helms. Richard Helms does not trust Richard Mayhew. Mm -hmm. Helms was aware, to your point, operating procedure, was aware of many, if not all, of these programs, uh, these efforts that Mayhew had been involved in. He regarded Mayhew as a security risk. And so when this proposal comes hits his desk in um, 1969, 1970, he, he uh, orders that Mayhew, it's fine, we can approach Hughes, but Mayhew is to have nothing to do with this program at all. So he's cut out and they go around him in approaching Hughes. 
Now, an organization that has not come up yet in our discussion, uh, which may strike some contemporary listeners as uh, a bit strange, is the United States Congress. One of the themes of the book, too, and particularly in these opening chapters where you're spilling out how Glomar sort of, you know, goes to sea, so to speak, is that the CIA is enabled or at least, um, you know, is operating in an environment of extreme deference from Congress. And we don't have the modern oversight system of committees and the scrutiny. That comes later, very much as a reaction to uh, intelligence operations that are exposed. And you know, we can talk about how Glomar, we'll talk about how that played into it as well. But talk a little bit about the kind of the attitude that members of Congress took when it came to quote unquote oversight of the CIA and the intelligence community. Yeah, I think you, I think you, deferential, I think that's a great word. Another uh, historian has called it undersight. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, that's a useful term as well. So there are no standing intelligence community uh, committees in Congress at that point. Instead, um, oversight, such as it was, consisted of subcommittees of House and Senate committees. Um, but these were not standing committees. These were ad hoc subcommittees that operated under the thumbs of the chairman of the full committees. And the, the key figure in this phase era was Richard Russell. A senator from Georgia had been a member of Congress since 1933, was a senior uh, member of the Senate and exerted tremendous power. Now, Russell was a staunch segregationist and on the wrong side of history, but he continued to exert uh, quite a bit of power, especially when it came to matters of defense policy, national security policy, and intelligence policy. And Richard Russell Uh, Throughout his career as the chief uh, overseer, uh, I'm using air quotes now, (laughs) of the CIA, um, and a role he had performed for over 20 years, Um, one one student of Congress has said that uh, conservative Democrats like, uh, from the South, like Richard Russell, who were held key positions as appropriators of funds, in almost every other case, uh, tried to limit the expenditures made uh, for programs, particularly social programs. Um, and But intelligence, it included for defense programs in some cases, but intelligence, the student of Congress says, that was the one exception where the, where the question that congressional overseers asked was, why do, why do you need this much money when, when intelligence programs came before um, these overseers, the question was not that, but do you have enough? Mm. And so a critic might say that these folks were less overseers than enablers of the intelligence community. And with all that money, it kind of it, it encouraged uh, excess. And as you write, I mean, in the book, you put it really bluntly, you say the system effectively empowered a small network of senior lawmakers to appropriate millions of taxpayer dollars for a scheme involving a giant claw without anyone seriously questioning whether it was a wise investment. They kind of seem to largely take the CIA's word for it or say like, well, our job is not to question necessarily whether this is a smart idea or a good use of money. It's, as you said, to kind of give you what you need to go off and accomplish the mission. And it's a very different way of thinking about Congress and the intelligence agencies than we do today. Very different. Now, this system will change soon, in part because of excesses that are exposed. Um, But that was the system in place at the time. And so 
overseers like Russell, they ask few questions, right? I mean, I forget the exact number, but in 1971, the these intelligence subcommittees met only four times all year long. It's amazing. They didn't ask many questions. Yeah. They didn't necessarily want the answers, right? And so as um, one source put it, at this point, and, and I think the, the text that you chose was apt, right, is that oversight, congressional oversight, essentially was a committee of one, mm-hmm. arguably. Yeah. Maybe two. Yeah. Um, Russell in the House, uh, maybe someone like George Mahon in mm-hmm. the House. Um, and they didn't ask questions. Instead, they would simply say oftentimes, as people at the time put it, uh, they would have conversations with Helms. And Helms himself said, my, my conversations with Russell were as follows. I would start to brief uh, Senator Russell on such and such program. And Helms said, then I wouldn't get very far into my briefing. And Senator Russell would stop me. And he would say, um, Richard, do you have, uh, is this important for us to do? Yes, Senator, I think it is. Well, that's good enough for me. End of conversation. <laughs> check rubber stamped. Right. That was congressional oversight at a, in a nutshell at this point in time. And it seems like in these lawmakers, you, you, you said this, but <clears throat> maybe you can elaborate on it a little bit, really didn't want to know what exactly these agencies were up to. And is that because it sort of put them on the hook for their failures? Yeah, it was politically safer not to know, right? If you ask too many questions and learn the answer, then if that program uh, goes awry, you're on the hook for it politically. Mm -hmm. You're Mm -hmm. accountable for it. So it was politically safer not to know. And as a quick example, fast forward a few years, um, there was uh, Lucian Nedzi was a representative from uh, Michigan who was initially tapped to be uh, to head what would become the Pike Committee investigating intelligence activities in 1975. But he had to resign from that committee. And it's known today as the Pike Committee, not the Nedzi Committee. Um, And he resigned because it was revealed that he had prior knowledge of some controversial CIA program uh, that had come to light. But that's an example where it was safer. He knew and he was answerable for it at some point. So it was safer politically not to know. Don't ask too many questions for fear of finding out the answer. Right. So the CIA and Hughes get together. They, they build the Glomar. Um, it sets sail to go to the Pacific. As you mentioned earlier, it's it's too wide to fit through the Panama Canal. So they have to go around the southern tip of South America. Um, they finally get it into position over the sub. So pick up the story there and tell us once they finally have this thing floating three miles above the K-129, what, what is the what is the next order of business? Yeah, so they, they, they remarkably, after all this time, this is 1974, the program's been going on six years now, the Hughes-Glomar Explorer is remarkably positioned exactly, precisely over the target object, three miles below. So much so, just to kind of point out how remarkable this is, that at some point later on, um, photographs of the submarine were taken. And they discovered an object on the hull of the submarine in the photos. They could see it there. It looked like a hammer, right? And they began to wonder, what is this object? What is this? Well, it was pieced together later on that someone on the Glomar Explorer had accidentally dropped a hammer overboard. And it had landed precisely on the submarine three miles below. That's how how precise this was, right? 
Well, so the next order of business, though, is to recover the sub. So you start to, and I'm simplifying, but you're lowering the claw down, down, down. They pick up the sub. They grab it. There are some difficulties in the bottom, but they manage to grab the sub and to start to lift it. Now, while this is happening, though, just to complicate the story a little bit, there are Soviet ships that appear at the target site. Not one, but two. And they start to circle the, the Glomar Explorer on the surface while it's grabbing the submarine three miles below and trying to lift it up. And the Soviet boats, they're, they're relatively small boats, they start to harass the Glomar Explorer. They are far distance, they approach rapidly back and forth. Um, they're taking photographs. There's a helicopter involved at one point that circles the Glomar, uh, starts to take photographs. Um, there are personnel on board the Soviet boats that can be seen visually. That's how close they were. You could eyeball them. Uh, and some were, uh, they had binoculars and um, cameras. They were taking pictures of Glomar, trying to figure out what was going on. And all, But all the while, um, the Glomar Explorer is pulling up Folks in the control room pulling up the submarine, up and up and up. Got about halfway up, and then people on board the ship felt a shudder. Mm. And it took a while to figure out, but it became pretty clear um, once the dust had settled that half a part uh, of the submarine had broken free and fallen back to the seabed. So um, at that point, then they, they reel in what they've got and, uh, and pull it up into the well of the ship and eventually steam off to see what to evaluate the get. Uh, but they did not get everything for sure. But, you know, that's a big accomplishment too, getting part of it. And so they know when they bring it up, they can basically see, they can tell we didn't catch everything. So what is the, what's the mood? I mean, is it one of triumph? Like, hey, we at least pulled it up. Or is it like, oh God, the whole mission has been a disaster. And did they think about putting the claw back down again to try and get more? Yeah, I think it's a mix. Mostly discipline. I mean, satisfaction, pride that they've been able to pull off something that nobody thought was possible. Just to give you a number, when this whole uh, program was uh, proposed in the early days, the uh, this is by the CIA's own reckoning, was they pegged the chances of success at 10%. Right. It was and supposed that, to fail. Yeah. It was supposed to fail. And that's just technologically. That had nothing to do with maybe a security breach. That was just technologically, can we do it? 10%. So, hey, they've got part of this up. That alone, it's a remarkable mm -hmm. accomplishment. And I think there's a, there, was a, there was a feeling, even today, if you speak to veterans of the project, and I had the honor of doing that, um, they're, they're proud of what they did, mm -hmm. right? And justifiably so. Sure. But there was disappointment that they didn't get what they wanted. Um, there's still some mystery surrounding exactly uh, what the agency did haul up, uh, what the yield was. But the best source on this is then DCI. William Colby had replaced uh, Richard Helms at DCI. And his memoirs, published not long uh, after he left that position, uh, say pretty clearly that the CIA did not get what it wanted. They didn't get that cryptologic system. They didn't get the crypto stuff. They didn't get the sub. They didn't get the uh, missile. They didn't get the warhead. They didn't get the most valuable stuff. So there was certainly disappointment. Uh, was there consideration to going back? Yes, absolutely. 
And that becomes a whole separate program, right? I mean, the, the idea of, of going <laughs> with a new code name. <laughs> yep. Yep. Because so, everything has to have another code name. Absolutely, right? So now, um, now this is, we have a new administration. So while the Glomar Explorer was at the target site, there had been a change of administration took place. Uh, Nixon's out. Gerald Ford is in. And so now the Ford decision, many of the same personnel are in place, Henry Kissinger, crucially, have to make the decision uh, do we go back? Kissinger, no big fan of the program to begin with. Not to begin with, but over time, he certainly yeah. warmed up and became a keen supporter. Mm. Um, but the decision was, do we, do we, can we go back? And if so, uh, should we? Um, one of the things I found actually really moving about the, some of the things that they were anticipating for what was going to happen when they're out there on, on the ship, and which is a Glomar is a shortening of Global Marine, right? So it's the Hughes Global Marine Enterprises that becomes Glomar. Yes, Glomar, that's and correct. That's the sort of odd, odd name, uh, is this wasn't just an intelligence hall. This was a burial site. So there were you know nearly 100 sailors that perished in the sinking of the sub, and they had to think about what they were going to do if, as they suspected they would, brought up uh, bodies. So talk a little bit about that. And and there is some footage of what they actually did with uh, the bodies, right? Yes, there is footage. It's it's online. You can see it. Uh, there was a, a, a burial ceremony that was pre-planned to take place in the event that human remains were discovered and they um, officials expected to find some. Uh, as you say, almost 100 people perished. In, in this uh, incident, and they did find human remains, and they uh, buried them according to um, uh, kind of a pre-planned script, in order, in order to be respectful, um, and and also in order to show evidence to Soviet officials should questions ever be asked, uh, because this was one of the sensitivities about the pro about the program from the beginning. It was a, a provocative program in a foreign relations sense, which we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. But um, that was one of the concerns about the project. And there was a great deal of concern and about an opposition to the program among U.S. government officials um, before the Glomar Explorer set sail. And one of the concerns was, well, one was that the submarine was still Soviet property. Um, legally, but that the submarine would contain human remains and the recovery of those remains by Americans would be particularly provocative and would likely um, lead to a Soviet response and a justifiable Soviet response at some point. And we're also, we haven't talked about this, but it's a good point to, to transition to it. You know, this is in a period of of detente between the United States and the Soviet Union. And this explains a lot of the sensitivities of the United States going and, and committing what is essentially it's an act of theft. I mean, the CIA tried to justify this by saying, I think that, you know, that wasn't it that the, the British had done this before or and Henry Kissinger's thing, right. response was like, right. no, that just means they got away with That's it. Right. It doesn't mean it's legal. Um, this is still Soviet property. They have not abandoned it. It's in international waters. Um, <clears throat> but the raising of it would create all kinds of different you know, political sensitivities. So talk about what detente was and then give us a sense of, of those foreign policy anxieties surrounding a mission that, by the CIA's own estimate, was likely to fail. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's uh, a lot of change happens. There's, remember the timeline of the project. It begins in 68, extends to 1975. As, as we discussed, uh, changes in um, expectations, public expectations regarding transparency and government openness 
that was a huge watershed that happened uh, during the course of the uh, Glomar operation. Uh, but another one was foreign relations. So when the project uh, first entered the pipeline in 1968, the Cold War was still running pretty hot. Yeah, there had been some openness, uh, some openings, I should say, during the Johnson administration. But detente was really a, a Nixon-era uh, um, innovation. And this was simply a lowering of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. But that really raised the political threshold for this particular problem. And in fact, what's one of the things that's interesting is that the White House uh, didn't really weigh in on this project until 1972 at the absolute earliest and did so only at that point because of the foreign relations implications that you mentioned. So now that you've entered into a more cooperative, less competitive relationship with the Soviet Union, that raises the political stakes. If the Soviets learn of this provocative operation, it's, it's theft, it's grave robbing, if you want to think about it that way, then um, not only could there be a, a military response on the part of the Soviet Union, which was always a serious possibility and one taken that way by American officials, but the political stakes, um, there could be serious repercussions there that might disrupt this new relationship of detente, uh, which the White House had a personal and political investment in. So why does the administration then decide to go ahead with it, despite the the obvious threat to Soviet-U.S. relations, which you know President Nixon is is keen on keeping in this you know kind of peaceful coexistence? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I'll say that. Nixon critics, of which there were many, uh, when <laughs> <There's a few. laughs> there, there were or a few, um, that this program, I'll just kind of cut to the chase, was disclosed. There was an unauthorized uh, disclosure in the press in 1975, um, which immediately after, months after Nixon's resignation. And critics at the time um, claimed that Nixon approved this program from the get-go only because of his under-the-table relationship with Howard Hughes, that Hughes essentially bought the naming rights to the Glomar Explorer. One would like to think that's not the case. Um, but the, the Nixon administration, full stop, to include the CIA, um, went forth with this uh, mission despite the risks because of the intelligence value of the of the submarine, which, as we discussed, was was very great, considered to be a high value item, a uniquely valuable item. And those are important words mm -hmm. in the intelligence community, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, but also, there was a belief, um, and this this kind of goes to a misunderstanding of of detente, right? Did detente did not mean as many wrongly thought at the time, I think, publicly that it meant the cessation of competition, right? It didn't mean that. Yeah. It might mean pulling back a little bit, some mutual restraint. But, but Cold War competition continued. Both sides continued to arm themselves. Both sides continued to spy on one another. And this was just one case. And so if you read the transcripts of the NSC discussions of this opera, of the proposal, that was it. Um, Kissinger... Uh, although concern, uh, critical of the operation initially and had some doubts, uh, came to support it very strongly because, as he said, look, they spy on us. 
We spy on them. Superpower competition continues. They'll understand. This is just what we do. There'll be some difficulties if they discover it, but A, we think they won't because there's no indication they have at this stage. The uh, target is uniquely valuable, and I think this is also crucial. There was reason to believe that if the Soviets did discover it, they might not want to publicize it Hmm. because they hadn't been able to discover their own submarine. Right. The Americans had. Right. It's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. And and there's a real concern. I forget who says it. It might be. It might even be Colby. But, you know, wanting to make sure that they didn't rub the Soviets' nose in it, that this, if it does become discovered by the Soviets, that this doesn't become an issue where they feel humiliated. Uh, that's that's kind of something to keep in mind, too. So you don't escalate what is already going to be a pretty tense situation. That's right. Saving face yeah. is really crucial here. So if they discover it, and eventually they did, it's, it's important to give the Soviets an out so that they can save face. And if we can allow them to save face, we will mitigate the public response. Um, so as you said at the beginning, you know, this, this program, which, you know, it's I guess by it's hard to peg a dollar amount to it by probably well north of a billion dollars by by today's today's dollars and has upwards of 1900 or so people working on it. It seems that from the beginning, you know, it's never going to stay secret forever. And obviously it didn't. Um, And of course, it ultimately does get divulged publicly. So tell us how. Uh, you know, the fourth estate of my profession. <laughs> and then we're going to get back to Glomar's special meaning for those of us in journalism and, and historians right. like yourself. Um, how does this operation ultimately get exposed? Yeah, it all goes back to that scrap of paper. There's one scrap of paper. This estimated $350 million for, let's say, 1975 money, this enormous plan, 1,900 people involved, the security of it, and this is the fatal flaw. It comes down to one scrap of paper, and it really comes down to Hughes. So quick backstory, as I mentioned, it was difficult uh, to because of, of, of Hughes's way of doing business, uh, he didn't have face-to-face contact with his business associates to communicate with him either by phone call or by written communication. So to propose this, so to get Hughes's permission to put his name on this project way back in 1970, a memo had been sent. And he may have read it. He may have approved it. We don't really know. But in any event, that piece of paper continued to exist. And I'm going to choose my words carefully. It was, um, did I mention this is all sounds crazy? Uh, It was (laughs) reported stolen in a 1974 burglary of a Hughes warehouse in Los Angeles. Okay. So, The Los Angeles police, L.A. authorities start to investigate this burglary. And long story short, reporters get wind of this investigation. There's a leak that occurs probably on the L.A. end. And uh, news of this elaborate scheme, the Glomar Explorer, this uh, this mystery ship, it turns out as the Los Angeles Times first reports in February 1975, the mystery ship, the mining ship, is actually – the LA Times reports, a CIA ship. And then that is followed up sometime later by a more authoritative report that Seymour Hersh publishes in the New York Times in March of 1975. So LA Times breaks the story. You know, they get the scoop. And what was fascinating, and there are several chapters in the book devoted to this, this 
kind of looking inside the journalistic establishment of the day where it was dominated by, you know, the Post, the Times, LA Times is there, Time Magazine. You've got sort of these very big players and people who do understand the world of secrecy to a good degree. You mentioned, you know, Cy Hirsch, you know, legendary reporter in that, in that front. But a lot of reporters had pieces of this and kind of sat on it for a long time, didn't they? And talk about a bit about the the entreaties that people like Colby, the CIA director, made and others to try and get reporters not to write about this subject. Yeah, this is I think this is one of the, if I may, one of the more interesting things about the narrative is there's this perception of the 1970s in particular as being this kind of era of runaway openness in which um, disclosures in the press and by kind of a revolutionary Congress uh, really put the nation's secrets at risk and that there was a fundamental change that occurred in um, in national security secrecy. And to a point, I think that's that's true. Um, there was, back to Congress, more oversight um, by Congress, more oversight by disclosure in the press. And to be sure, the press was far more critical of national security claims uh -huh. in 1975 than they had been a generation before. Sure. All of that is true. But what's interesting is, um, as you said, the extent to which security claims continued to hold value. And so in an effort to keep the secret secret, in, uh, after the time, LA Times had published its initial report, and I should mention at this point that the LA Times' initial report um, authored by local um, crime beat reporters in Los Angeles. It was a little garbled. There were some key mm. factual uh, errors that had been made. For one, misplacing the target in the in the Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. as opposed to the Pacific. And Pretty so, big mistake. It's a huge mistake. That's <laughs> <laughs> a big mistake. That would get a correction. And and as important as the Los Angeles Times was, it wasn't the New York Times or right. the Post, right? right? And so William Colby was hoping that maybe if he could turn off the other reporters, that maybe the Soviets, although they could read the newspaper too, that maybe they would discount this or maybe willfully discount it, right? And so Gold, Colby goes around to all the newsrooms, uh, and it's just amazing his energy to go to uh -huh. newspaper editorial offices and radio and television and talk to untold numbers of reporters and editors and publishers. And remarkably, was able to keep the story quiet for about six weeks or so yeah, based on these, uh, a security claim that if the, if the LA Times uh, initial report was corroborated by another, um, another publication, that that would end the program, which he assured them was a viable and important program, and that this would cause foreign relations problems for the United States. And it's fascinating because, I mean, it, it, in, in, well, as you point out in the book, in having those meetings, I mean, he is confirming that, that the program is real, right? So in order to, and this always happens when, when senior officials want to come to people in the press and say, please don't report on this, they are implicitly confirming that, you know, that at least the crux of the story is true. Um, but it still does hold some, some currency and some cachet. Um, but what I found so interesting about this is it, it, 
I could imagine something like this happening today where, you know, you have a, a CIA director saying like, you know, oh, well, that was a not great story that appeared in this small publication, you know, and almost appealing to the vanity of of reporters at the big name publications to say it's really dependent on you to keep the secrecy of this. Um, but but it ultimately it doesn't hold forever. And even though the six weeks and talk about when it then gets published in the New York Times and others. I mean, like, what is the, the sort of the immediate reaction to people learning that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because the the break, though, um, yes, the, the the Los Angeles Times story is corroborated eventually, but the break in the break occurs not by the New York Times. It does eventually, but the break occurs because of Jack Anderson, mm-hmm, right. right? Who is not really he has a he's a syndicated radio talk show on the mutual network mm-hmm. um he's kind of this maverick uh maverick voice out there yeah. who's kind of always talking about government malfeasance right and it's an endless stream of this kind of stuff and a really legendary like larger than life investigative reporter absolutely yeah. larger than life investigative reporter uh who was on to a number of important stories over his career but these security claims that Colby made just didn't work right. with with Jack Anderson. Right. He'd been around the block once or twice, and he'd heard those. And his argument, uh, and there's transcripts. It's wonderful uh, transcripts of Colby's conversations um, with Jack Anderson, his assistants at the time. And there's a wonderful back and forth about what's in the public interest. Colby says it's in the public interest to keep this quiet. Anderson says, I hear that about public interest, but I think what's in the public interest is the fact of spending um, this exorbitant amount of money on what many of my sources are telling me is um, is an outdated submarine launched in 1959 that had limited intelligence value, right? It's, it's an archaic uh, piece. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have nearly the value that some people think it does. Um, and this is really just a boondoggle. And he, and he uses the word cover-up, which is a trigger word, mm-hmm. right, sure. in 1975. And so Jack Anderson elects to disclose the story um, in a, a mid-March 1975 broadcast. And that's really what breaks the dam open because to his credit, Colby – and I, I, I don't know how things work now. I'm not a journalist. But Colby had gone around and promised – um, all the journalists um, to whom he had spoken, look, if, if I get the sense that somebody's going to break the story, I'm going to call you back and give you permission or to go ahead and publish. That is how it works now. And, <laughs> is that right? Yeah, sure. And he, you, you say, you say, you, you got to tell me, I will hold off if you make sure to tell me that we're about to get beat. There you go. Yeah. Don't want to get scooped. So, and, right. and he contacted those folks and the dam broke at that point. And, and Hirsch published his story in, in March 1975, which is a very accurate and detailed account. And, and it's it's so interesting too because you know I as I'm reading this now you know as a Washington Post reporter and it's fascinating to go back and read you know the words of my editors I never worked for obviously and, and Kay Graham and, and ultimately I mean Kay Graham kind of came down on the side Catherine Graham, the, of course the the owner and publisher of the paper of. Uh, uh, not publishing and saw the value <clears throat> in not publishing it. And, you know, and I've at the government's request withheld information or held whole stories even before. It's not routine, but it does happen. And every time you have to kind of weigh the decision making, the way that they were wrestling with it, uh, even then. And I found myself as I was reading your book thinking, where would I have come down on this? 
And, and I think I probably would have come down on the side of Jack Anderson. And, and not so much even because I would have thought that, you know, well, it's a boondoggle and it's a waste of money. But I feel like I would have thought probably came on the side of there's no way this thing is going to stay a secret. And I would have even questioned whether or not the Americans were not telling me the full story insofar as the Soviets very likely knew something that they were up to or may have had suspicions about it. Um, but, you know, what, what struck me, though, is it, so interesting, and I did not know this until I read your book, that more than two-thirds of newspaper editorials across the country, as you write, declared that the Glomar expedition was a major victory for U.S. intelligence. And when this story comes out, there is something of a backlash against the press, which is to say, Sure. I mean, all these other exposures of intelligence malfeasance and things that were directed at U.S. citizens or improper or illegal domestic operations, those were good to expose and bring to the light of day. But a significant number of people thought the press has gone too far in writing about the Glomar expedition. Yeah, this uh, – thank you. I think that was one of the surprising findings uh, for me in, in researching this story was found a great resource that pointed to that. And there, there did seem to be – um, a breakdown. Um, kind of the uh, elite uh, coastal newspapers, right. uh, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the, and the Washington Post was, was maybe an exception because there was a competition between the Post and the New York Times about the intelligence beat. Yeah. Um, the Post was on Watergate, but the New York Times was hitting the intelligence beat, and the Post tended to pull back uh, on that particular issue so at that time. There was so a sense of competition on yeah. that. But the um, middle America, so to speak, um, newspapers in the middle portion of the United States, non-elite publications, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that, had a different view. And those were the publications who tended to, to publish um, the view that the Glomar Explorer was something to be celebrated, mm -hmm. that it was not a boondoggle, that this was, this was American ingenuity at its best. And you get the sense from reading a lot of the, uh, these editorials um, that there was a, people were looking for something to be positive about. Mm -hmm. This is the, the operation comes to light in March 1975, just as um, the, the last stage of the Vietnam War is ending mm -hmm. and the uh, U.S. Embassy in Saigon is about to be evacuated. So the fact that the United States could locate an enemy submarine where the Soviet Union could not and develop this incredible program to raise that submarine, partially successful to be sure, right? But that alone was something to be celebrated in the eyes of, of many newspapers. Um, and you're right. And so just judging by that, uh, there does a backlash, does start to creep in that the press had exposed too many U.S. national security secrets and had hamstrung the U.S. And so there's this pushback that happens against that, um, starting, I think, with the Glomar uh, ex exposure, which really does, that's not the last word. Right? Yeah. That's not the only thing that's happening out there. Let me be clear, but right. that really changed the conversation. The conversation would be different after that. And the key thing, I think, was that unlike domestic spying campaigns, unlike foreign assassination plots, this was an a technical intelligence collection program, highly technical, that was an on 
going mm-hmm. um, program at the time that had been certified as important by not one but two DCIs, right? And that carried some special weight. Yeah. And, and it's still, <clears throat> you know, you still see, I get backlash against this too. I mean, it's, it's not, it's very common that I'll write about some sensitive matter or even some classified information or operation in the government. And people write to me and say, like, how dare you expose this? I mean, this is really a debate that we still have. And it was so interesting. You see it really manifest in the exposure of Glomar. Um, and we should, this leads us into a nice uh, uh, segue into talking about, as I alluded to earlier, the, the particular resonance of the word Glomar for journalists and historians like yourself, for people who try to get access to classified documents particularly using the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and people like in our business are often uh, have, have will say that they have had the pleasure or displeasure of being glomarred when they apply for those documents. So tell us just briefly the story of what it means uh, to be glomarred and why the word glomar has now become synonymous with government secrecy. Yeah. So um, the agency developed uh, something called the glomar response. Uh, which begins with the words, we can, it's some combination, but we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of the information you are requesting. So this is language that the agency develops in response to Freedom of Information Act's uh, requests filed under the FOIA law. And the, the FOIA, although introduced in the late 1960s, had been significantly strengthened by Congress in 1974. And that language was developed, um, oddly enough, by uh, in response to a FOIA request submitted for information about the Glomar Explorer operation, uh, which is where that language comes from. And I, I had the uh, privilege of interviewing um, the person who developed that language, who was um, who has since passed since I spoke with him, um, but was a wonderful source um, and uh, learned many things. And um, he was a lawyer by training, and it shows. Um, but that language is particularly uh, vexing, right, to journalists, watchdogs, academics, um, and on to the effort for government transparency and openness, generally speaking, because uh, prior to a Glomar response, um, an agency had to uh, confirm the existence of those records, whether or not those records existed. And you might not get them, but you knew that they existed. And you could challenge that for reasons X, Y, and Z. But the Glomar response doesn't confirm or deny the existence of the records in the first place. And so you can't really... um, appeal, (laughs) Um, that kind of a response. And I think that that's really central. I mean, the the FOIA system, as you well know, is broken for a lot of reasons, lack of funding, way too much, the explosion of classified documentation and so forth. But the Glomar response has a lot to do with it. Uh, It really is difficult for academics, um, journalists and watchdogs to get information about um, about programs. And this, this is particularly, particularly true for us intelligence historians. Um, we, we rely on government documentation to tell stories like Glomar. And so that the Glomar response, I think, is arguably the most durable product of the Glomar operation. And it continues to exert tremendous 
tremendous influence today to the point that's become a cliche, right? Mm -hmm. That language, neither confirm nor deny, originated in 1975. That's become a cliche. Well, I can neither confirm nor deny that, right? Your teenager's going to say that to you if you ask a a nosy question. So um, it really is, its cultural impact is enormous as well. And to the theme and title of your book as well, I mean, it's it, this is it, this this whole experience and the aftermath of it, and, and the obviously arguably the backlash towards the exposure has this effect of of shielding the CIA from transparency of, of really I don't want to say creating, but it seems to me kind of uh, um, strengthening or buttressing the kind of culture of secrecy that they can operate in, which allows them to do many of the kinds of daring operations like Glomar that they continue today. You can't really do that without a culture of secrecy. Yeah, I think it's really crucial and you can quantify it. I don't have the exact figures in my head, but in the conclusion, you can see um, there have been a good number of of, uh, documents pertinent to Glomar itself that have been released over the years, but in part due to the Glomar response, there are literally hundreds of thousands of records pertaining to that particular operation that still remain in CIA archives because those are operational records that they won't confirm or deny actually exist but have responded in legal (laughs) proceedings that they do exist. Um, But it's, it's true, I think, not just for the agency but the way that that response has been adopted um, at the federal level by other agencies. The post office now is issuing Glomar uh, responses to FOIA requests. State governments now have uh, permit FOIA responses to uh, requests for information filed under state freedom of uh, open government laws. And even local governments uh, have used this as well. And other countries have adopted Glomar responses in their FOIA laws as well. Canada, the UK, Australia, just to name three. So the Glomar response has um, grown uh, vertically, mm-hmm. uh, but also horizontally as well. And so it's just had tremendous influence. And it's it's a it's an amazing piece of legalese. You can't yeah. really respond to yeah. it, right? Yeah. And I think when journalists get their first one, it's always kind of memorable. Or uh, yeah, it's, it's a badge of honor. Yeah, to yeah. be Glomart. Exactly way, right? to get Glomart. It's a good thing. Yeah. Right? Well, in that sense. Um, well, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, as as a State Department historian, and you're working on these uh, authoritative reports on foreign policy, and you kind of come across, you know, these documents and the story of this. How did that idea then to do a book about this kind of gestate with you? And did you think to yourself, really, I want to go write a book about this uber secret? Uh, uh, operation that is synonymous with opacity, and was that intimidating? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, uh, the, the as you say, the cinematic qualities of the story became clear really quickly. Um, writing a book was a slower process. I remained at State for a few more years. The the manuscript that I mentioned, uh, the official publication, had to go through declassification mm, review. Mm-hmm. That was a seven-year process. Oh, my it God. entered declassification in 2007. It exited declassification in 2014. Um, but remarkably intact, I have to say. I was surprised. So, but in that period, I was not at liberty to talk about it because I had, in my former uh, professional life, had privileged access to CIA records and had signed a non-disclosure agreement. Um, so it was only after that those records were declassified that, oh, Okay, and declassified and not harmed too much, not too many redactions, that I thought, oh, okay, now a book might be possible because 
the record, the documents published in that official compilation are really key. They're not available anywhere else because they tell a high-level political story about decision-making and process. So at that point, I thought, okay, a book might be possible. Got to go interview some sources, supplement it with other archival information, but that was really the key point. And then my initial thought, though, was to write um, kind of a highly dramatic, um, you know, nonfiction mm-hmm. account, but mm-hmm. a highly dramatic account. But um, I talked to an editor, and, he's, and he really uh, gave me some important advice. He told me to write, um, do what you do. Mm. I'm a foreign relations historian, <clears throat> so try to write the book that I'm qualified to write. I'm not an engineer, as discussed yeah. earlier. That book had been written. And so I tried here to write a book um, that would be respected by my academic peers. That mm-hmm. is important to me. Um, but also a book that would be read uh, by people, smart people, who aren't professional historians but are interested in, in history and in intelligence history in particular. Um, so I tried to do both. There's certainly a, a, a possibility of pleasing no one in trying to do both, but uh, I tried to do that. Oh, I think you succeeded. I mean, it has a, it, it has a narrative quality to it and a clear through line, and it's 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 a very exciting read. And I, and um, while I have you here, I have to ask you because you know classified documents are so much in the news right now, <laughs> and you know, and, and the public is. I mean, not, I don't mean to, to treat this too lightly, but the public is really getting kind of a real time education on the nature of the government classification system, on the way that documents are handled or are supposed to be handled, the way that you know, a slip of paper can go someplace it's not supposed to be. I mean, I'm just kind of curious as you, someone who is steeped in that world of, of you know, official documentation and clearances and those kinds of things, you know, do you have any, what, what's your thoughts about what we're kind of going through right now as a country in that story? I think the rules are different depending on who you are. Yeah. I think that's my big takeaway. Yeah. So for uh, us drones, yeah. um, the, <laughs> I think yeah. the rules are very clear and we must follow them. Yeah. I think if you're the president of the United States, I think the rules uh, are appear to yeah. be different yeah. or applied differently. How about that? That's my takeaway. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had this conversation with editors before where I explain, you know, like there are, there are worlds in which, uh, in cases in which people who have done the, some of the things that are alleged here are currently in federal prison right. uh, when you have retained classified documents and not returned them. But that's it. Well, we're all kind of going through this. Yes. Um, uh, and do you think, would the Azorian project have been carried out today? Huh. That's a great question. Um, a veteran of the project has said no, that the project never would have gotten off the drawing board had there been greater oversight. Um, and that I conclude that's probably the case. Again, had, had the proposal come down the line maybe five years later, things would have been very different. I do not think it would have been approved because the procedures were just different. For example, the... National Security Council committee that was supposed to clear, to discuss and approve um, sensitive or major clandestine operations uh, didn't even discuss the Glomar project until the Glomar Explorer, the ship, was sitting at in Long Beach ready to set sail, all $350 million worth of it. It's going. Yeah. Right. I mean, Operation Barn right. Door. It yeah. has a moment. That, that's called bureaucratic inertia. Mm-hmm. It's going. Um, so I think one would like to think that's not the case. But I, I guess also one, one takeaway as an intelligence historian is I don't often quote Don Rumsfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
there's something to be said about uh, unknown unknowns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You never know. And I don't know uh, what the agency, the intelligence community has planned, uh, has done in the past. Uh, when you read things like the Crypto AG uh, disclosures, I mean, that's an, that is an amazing, imaginative, ambitious, whatever word you want to use, mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there will be mo- more disclosures down the line. So I, one of the themes here and I think this deserves further study is imagination yeah. and intelligence operations. At some level, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about oversight and, and intelligence successes. It's imagination. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and you write about this in the book. I mean, the CIA clearly wants this episode along to stand alongside other great achievements in its history. And it has actually documented it in one form in an oil painting. That hangs in the hallway. Uh, it's after you come off the lobby. I've seen the painting a number of times myself. Um, of you know, it's it's from below. It's like you know, imagining the sub being raised up into the you know the moon pool of the Glomar, and it's you know there alongside a painting of you know uh, Afghan fighters firing CIA supplied Stinger That's missiles, right. and you know, and you know a lot much about Langley is kind of a living museum. You know, they have you know the uh, the drawbreaker helicopter that took the first team into Afghanistan right. after 9/11, sitting there in the parking lot. Um, of course, as you point out very thoughtfully in the book, uh, not anyone can just walk in off the street. You have to be a CIA employee or a cleared visitor to go see it. But the agency very clearly wants this episode that you're documenting to be something that looms in the imagination of the current CIA workforce to remember an idea about where they came from. And I thought that was a very poignant observation that you made, that they they want the current crop of people who were you know not at the agency then, who weren't even there before 9-11, to remember this as something of these are the big things that we are capable of. That's right. I think you put your finger on something. And, and folks who have no uh, memory of the Glomar Explorer itself, but I think that's one of the takeaways that the agency learned. What lessons did the agency learn from this? And one, I think, um, is the importance of telling your own story. Yeah. Right. There are some secrets you cannot tell uh, for security reasons, Um, but you can tell your own story. And so what you see is a process of the agency starting to kind of break out and telling its own story, shaping the conversation in a way that will serve its interests. Mm -hmm. And the the agency and its retired uh, officers became much, much more active uh, starting in the mid-70s mm-hmm. in response to a bunch of bad disclosures mm-hmm. uh, that had been harmful to the agency and its image and trying to shape the conversation by telling its own story in part uh, in museums and artwork, yeah. as you mentioned. Yeah, that's, right. that's great. Um, well, our, our tradition on uh, chatter here is the actual last question I ask the guest as I reach into the chatter box here sitting in front of you. Don't be afraid. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to select a pre-written question at random, and that will be our, our final question for you for the interview. Um, okay, so this is actually a very interesting one. This is maybe a little outside your expertise, but this goes into the idea of big government programs and imaginative initiatives. Should the U.S. send a manned mission to Mars? <laughs> uh, that is definitely outside above my pay grade. I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds interesting. I would need to know more. Okay. Uh, you know, kind of what 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 are we going to learn from that? Yeah, uh, yeah, is yeah. it worth is it worth the uh, the buck? Yeah. Um, as a non-expert, I'm I'm talking here. Is that kind of the, after thinking about big projects like this? Is that sort of your rubric for things? Is like what is the the value? Uh, I mean, is that is that the right question to ask about? 
Blomar-esque expeditions. Well, I think I think in that case, but that's the first one that comes to mind anyway, yeah. is is it worth the investment? Because that's, right. that's a sizable investment. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But that would be one metric, right? Is it yeah. worth the investment? Also, can we do it? Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Should we do it? That's another question. Yeah. I, I, I should cheat here and ask you one more question because I didn't ask you. Do you think in the end Glomar was worth the investment? I... That's a hard question to answer, and I'll tell you why. It's because former agency officials say that there were follow-on projects that um, benefited from the basic technology used, mm-hmm. right? But I haven't been able to verify what those programs are and exactly how they benefited from the Glomar-like technology. It is entirely possible so one of the things that uh, you're developing here, and this had been on, this had been happening before Glomar came online, was the ability to perform underwater intelligence mm. operations. Now, you know, you probably know that is among the most secretive aspects of the U.S. intelligence effort is yeah. the underwater collection program. Yeah. Um, so maybe is the answer. Um, I th- we would I would need to know a lot more to answer that question definitively. Yeah, that's a good answer and a good answer for a historian and a person of inquiry. Good too. but unsatisfying, <laughs> <laughs> but an honest one. So I appreciate Fair that. Uh, Todd Bennett, uh, the book is terrific. Neither confirm nor deny how the Glomar mission shielded the CIA from transparency. I promise everyone is a highly readable book. It is a great work of history. It's not all policy. It's a tremendous story. It's beautifully told. Uh, And thank you for coming on Shatter and talking about it. Thank you for having me. It's been just a joy. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.